I'm going to begin reading there in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. For that Sabbath was a high day. He asked that they might be taken away, and so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Uh, you, You may be reading an English translation there that says 100 pounds, because The measurements are a bit uncertain to us, but 75 to 100 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures always. Father, we ask your blessings now on your word, that it might indeed produce good fruit in us. We know that your word always accomplishes what you intend. We pray that the intention this morning in every heart here would be good and not evil. That we would all leave this place loving Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. If I were to ask some of you children right now, how many of you have said this morning or yesterday or one day this past week, That's not fair. If I were to ask you, how many of you have said that's not fair to your mother or father or to someone else, mm, a whole bunch of you would raise your hands, wouldn't you? I see people smiling and nodding and some are looking indignant like they would never say such a foolish thing because they did yesterday. We, We say it all the time, that's not fair. And if you had a father like my children had, the response would be, of course it's not fair. Life's not fair. This is a sinful world. 
Don't expect fairness, justice in this world. There's only justice in Jesus. Well, we, we might even, and we, we have no doubt, and, and men in pulpits have said that what happened to Jesus was not fair. That was not justice. And if you take it simply on the fact that Jesus was sinless, then it wasn't fair. But that's not what happened on the cross. And that's what I've tried to point out over the previous weeks before Peter Zabo was here. Wasn't that a wonderful day? I just had a phone call from, from Pastor Zabo yesterday as they're preparing to head back to Hungary. And he sends his greetings. And, and he added this at the end. He said, Erica and I were just talking. I've been able to preach in several churches. And I won't tell you which churches because you'd recognize all of them. And said, we were just talking about no one sings like Covenant in Oak Ridge sings. And that was the first thing I thought of this morning as I heard your wonderful voices rising up to the heavens. And that's to commend you to keep on singing the praises of the Lord. But before Peter was here and then over the last couple of weeks as Pastor Sean's carried the the burden of all the sermons. We looked at this and we were reminded that yes, the death of Christ, the sinless one, the one that Pilate even said, I can find no fault in this man. He's done nothing wrong. And yet he suffered and bled and he died like an ordinary common sinner now for a sinless man to suffer that way that would have been injustice but the fact is is that he who knew no sin became sin for us he didn't hang on the cross for himself he went to the cross for us for all his people to save his people from their sins do you notice how Isaiah put it the many So that many transgressors, many sinners, many who commit iniquity might be saved. That's that's what took place. See, it was justice. We were in Christ on that cross. Justice Justice was meted out. Our sin, our our very sinful selves were put under the wrath of God. And because of that, there is no wrath to fear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because all the wrath that he has to dispense for his people has been dispensed. That's the reason the writer of the book of Hebrews can say, For all those who are looking forward to his coming, he will come again with no mention of sin. I'll tell you, my daddy was a fine pastor, but I don't think I ever understood this. Maybe I just missed it. Maybe I didn't hear it. 
But the picture you get sometimes is on that great day, that last day when Jesus comes and we're all judged, he's going to be wagging his finger at us, reminding us of all of our sins. And that's just simply not biblical. Yes, for the goats. Yes, for those unbelievers. But for everyone who's in Christ Jesus, there'll be no mention of sin. Simply, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's because Christ went to the cross, took our wrath that we deserved, and that was justice. Because we deserved the wrath of God. And he took it for us in our place. Well, that's pretty much a sermon, isn't it? What we've seen already, the first point was that Jesus Christ is the king. He was the king when he came. That's what he said in chapter 18. That's what the whole book is about, is the kingship of God, kingship of Christ, the Messiah. From the beginning to the end, he's the king. All the kings of the old covenant were pictures. They pointed to him. David being the the quintessential, you know, he was the epitome of, of the king after God's own heart. And he pointed to a king, however, that would, would sit on the throne forever and ever. There's only one that fulfills that, and that's Jesus. We saw also that Jesus is the mediator. The mediator between God and man. But we also saw that he's the mediator between us. So if we hope to have any peace with one another and to be able to resolve any conflicts between one another, it's because Jesus Christ, as John told us, was placed, was hung between them, between those two sinners. So vertically between God and man, horizontally between all of us. He's the Prince of Peace. Then... Second point, we focused on the sinners. And that's the focal point that John and, in fact, all the gospel writers make. They crucified him. There's no Hollywood in Matthew, Mark, Luke. There's no Hollywood in John. There's no blood and guts. There's no goriness. The focus is on the sinners. They crucified him. And that's where all the gospel writers stop. Now we can read in what took place physically because we know about the crucifixion. We read as much as the gospel writers give us that they, they, they beat him. They put a thorny crown on him. But beyond that, we know very little from what the Bible tells us. But the focus is always on the sinner's. They crucified him. They divided his garments. And so we focused on that in the second point. But we also focused on the sinners that Jesus died for. Namely, John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. And from that day forward, Mary resided with John. And the question comes... Why did Jesus do that? Why didn't he say, Mom, go back, 
My half-brothers are there to take care of you. Because it wasn't about blood. It wasn't about genealogy. It was about faith. It was about the church of the living God. And it's always been about faith. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's always about faith. And we saw that. We saw that John emphasizes Jesus carrying his own cross. Luke, the physician, tells us that Simon of Cyrene came into the picture at some point. But John doesn't deal with that because he wants us to understand that, no, it doesn't matter who physically carried the cross. Jesus is the one who bore our cross. He's the one who took it. He's the only one that can do for us what we needed on that cross of which we've said. And by the way, when we read of him dying for sinners, mediating for sinners, we're reminded that it's all sinners. When the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, be careful that you don't read that in a truncated sense. If you read that New Testament forward, then you leave out all the old covenant saints and they have no salvation. The church existed in the garden. God's assembled people. The gathered together ones. Jesus died on the cross. Looking back, Peter is so clear on this. He says, I'm declaring to you in 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm declaring to you what the Old Testament prophets declared and looked forward to. They looked forward to Christ and believed. We look back to Christ and believe. Salvation was always intended to be in Christ as he came in the flesh on the cross and then as he was raised so we saw that and now finally the third point he was dead and buried he's dead that's what we read right there they came to break his legs why well because it was not supposed to be allowed for Anyone to be on a cross after the beginning of the Sabbath. That's interesting, isn't it, that Caiaphas and the others wanted to be sure that Jesus was dead before the Sabbath started because they didn't want the Sabbath interfered with. Well, that's, that's commendable. They didn't want anything to get in the way of the Sabbath. That's commendable. But they missed the whole Sabbath point. The whole Sabbath point is the Messiah. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath always, Old Covenant, New Covenant, was to be a day where we are set apart and we are, we are focused upon God and His things. Six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath we're to remember, we're to keep holy. It was a day in the Old Covenant, it's the day in the New Covenant for us to to stop 
and pause. We say sometimes, it's, it's the closest thing to heaven on earth. Our Puritan fathers of the English, Scottish, and Dutch varieties all focused on this. It's that day that gets us closest to where we ultimately will be, our citizenship in heaven. We're to rest in Christ in our bodies. We're to rest in Christ in our souls. We're to worship him. They missed it. While they were jealous, even zealous for the Sabbath, it was a zeal with no knowledge. We can be the same way if we're not careful. We can have zeal for the day and not include Christ. Let's not do that. So, out of their zeal, they sinned. Permission, can we have them, their legs broken? That would affect, cause suffocation, and they would die right there and then. They go, the first thief, to the right of the Lord, to the left of the Lord. They break their legs, so they will die. And then they get to Jesus, and they saw that he was already dead. Why was that? Why did he die before the thieves? Same crucifixion, same method. They'd been up there for the same amount of time. Well, we've already read why. Back up after he says, everything I'm accomplishing is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, he's the Lord God Almighty. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who numbered our days, and he numbered his day as well. He determined, not the crucifixion, Jesus determined when he would die on the cross. He determined when he would go to the cross in the fullness of time. He determined when on the cross he would die. His soul, his spirit, would ascend back to the Father, his body then for burial. He's dead. He gave up his spirit. One of the soldiers were told, just out of good measure, thought, well, let's check and be sure, just to be sure, speared him, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, I'm I'm compelled to say that that there's some imaginative minds in the history of the church have have thought there's got to be something to this blood and water thing. And so they've they've made it into, in some cases, uh, pictures of the sacraments. The water is baptism, they say. Well, there's just one problem with that. John doesn't say that. He's not talking about the sacraments. He's talking about Christ dying on the cross for the sins of his people. Yes, baptism points to that, but it's not that. Some have made the blood to be the Lord's Supper. Well, there's a problem with that. That's not all there is to the Lord's Supper. There's the body and the blood. The major problem, though, with all those kind of superficial speculations As Calvin would have said, a vain speculation. He considered all speculation to be vain, vanity, vanity. But the biggest problem is that John tells us 
why he said that blood and water ran out of Jesus' side. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. Why did John tell us that the spear went in, the body and the blood came out, or to set the sacraments before us? No, so that we might believe that Jesus Christ died for sinners. That's why he did it. That's why John includes it. And he goes on to tell us, why don't we just read it and listen? Instead of getting off into some wild, imaginative speculations. Well, so if you've ever done that, don't do that again. That's the, that's the moral of the story. The lesson is, do you believe? The question is, do you believe? John says, that's why I'm telling you this, so that you might believe that Jesus Christ died for sinners. As Thomas Boston would put it in marrow language from the marrow of modern divinity. Do you believe that he's dead for you? That Jesus Christ is dead for you. And that you therefore are dead to sin. So that you might be alive in Christ. That's what John's doing. Nothing more and nothing less. And that's the best thing he could be doing for us. So that you may also believe. But hey don't forget this. What's the whole point of the whole book? Well we're going to get there. Very shortly in chapter 20, but we've been seeing it ever since chapter 1. These things I've written to you that you might believe. And in believing that you might have everlasting life. So the question is, do you believe it? Not do you see a sacrament, but do you believe Jesus Christ suffered and bled for sinners? And that there is none righteous, not even one. We're all sinners. We all need this message. Well, next, notice the mention of these two men that comes. After he tells us that these things fulfill scripture, he says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And that should encourage us all, shouldn't it? As a believer, sometimes we find ourselves in fear. One of the most remarkable things ever said about any human man on this earth, mere human, not God-man human, as in Jesus, but just plain Jane, vanilla, ordinary man, was said of John Knox. By an enemy of John Knox at John Knox's funeral. There lieth a man who never feared man. I'm going to go out on a limb here and venture to say that doesn't describe anyone in this room. But we should all aspire to that. That we would never fear man for greater is he that is in you and me than he who is in the world. Knox owned that. He lived that. From the days of defending his mentor, George Wishart, 
While Wishart was up in the high pulpit preaching, Knox would stand at the foot with his, with his claymore drawn. That's a little sword. Every boy in here knows that, but you girls might not have. Read Douglas Bond. You'll learn all about this kind of stuff. From that time to the end of his life, John Knox never feared man. Why? Because he knew a God who was sovereign. And we should too. So let's don't be too hard on, on Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Christ, and yet he, he struggled with the fear of man. Obviously, Nicodemus did, because he came to Jesus in the cloak of night. And now we're hearing about him again. But why are these men brought up? Why does John bring these men back up? Well, because it's history. Pastor, they were there. John likes to tell us what's going on. Well, yeah, that's true. But he's making a point. Remember, John's theologically oriented. He's not just historically oriented. His whole point is to, is to give us a whole bunch of sound theology so that we would have all sorts of reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners and that we too can be saved. And immediately after he says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, quoting Zechariah 12.10, which we read several weeks ago now with the last installation of this passage. After he says that, that that passage was fulfilled, he brings up Joseph and Nicodemus. Why? Well, because Zechariah 12 is all about this Jesus coming and changing men's lives. Let me just read you a sample from that chapter we have this, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, there's the quote, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself. And he goes on and on and on. And then in verse 1 of 13, which should be part of 12, if they hadn't have messed up the, the chapterizations. Remember, I'm not blaming God for that. Men did that. Okay. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. I'll remove the spirit of uncleanness. He goes on and on. What day is it? It's the day when the Lord comes and does his great work. This day that we're reading about in John chapter 19. And what's going to happen? People are going to be changed. They're going to be mourning for their sin and they're going to be enjoying the grace and the mercy of the Lord. 
And they're going to be putting off their uncleanness. Jesus has said not long ago that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And John is just placarding in our face examples of how powerful the gospel is to change lives, to take men who are frightened, who are scared to death, men who, 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 who know the Lord, but they, they just can't quite speak up when they need to, and they can't stand up when they need to, and Christ being crucified changed all that. Joseph comes, and he's a member, we're told elsewhere, of the Sanhedrin. In other words, Caiaphas and those guys would not like Joseph being here. And they will give him a mouthful when they get him back in the council. But he doesn't care. The fear of man is gone because he has seen Christ lifted up. And if I am lifted up, I will draw men to me. And Joseph is over it. He's done with fearing men. Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes out. Now he's not only coming at not he's not coming at night. He's coming after that darkness has been lifted from, from midday. And he's coming in public, and he's got a hundred pounds of costly spices that he's bringing to honor the Savior. That's not Nicodemus at night anymore, is it? If I am lifted up, I will draw them into myself. Zechariah 12, I will change lives. They will go about mourning their sin, rejoicing in the Savior. And that's what's taking place right here in these two men. The salvation of Jesus procured changes of men. I hope you read the little, little quote I sent you this week, members from B.B. Warfield. What a, what a blight. No wonder the church is so anemic when it's been told by so many, Jesus provided a way of salvation for you. He made it an opportunity for you. But the scripture says nothing of that. You will call his name Jesus for he will not make possible salvation. He will save his people from their sins. And that's what he did. He saved his people from their sins. Isaiah said, in him being smitten and slain, he saved many. Isaiah didn't even say he, he, he'll make it possible for many to be saved. No. Many transgressors. Are you among the many? And by the way, don't get a little bitty number in your mind. Remember I, Revelation chapter 7. Speaking of the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the 24 represent the Old Covenant, New Covenant church. What are the numbers beyond counting? Many 
are many, 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 many beyond counting. That's a remarkable thought, isn't it? That should keep us from ever being proud. We're just one of many. But isn't that wonderful to be one of many for whom Christ died? What a special thing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. He doesn't make it possible for us, but he makes it real in our lives. The death and burial of Jesus Christ vindicated the words of John that he's been writing up to this point. John's many reasons to believe are effectual, and that effectuality is seen in the lives of of Joseph and Nicodemus, and John and Mary, and I could go around this room naming names of how effectual the grace of God in Jesus Christ has been in your lives, in my life. Children, listen to this. Salvation, being part of the people of God, is not about blood. That's the whole point of Mary, behold your son, John. John, behold your mother, Mary. This is the reason Paul says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you, even the Israel of God. What was the rule that he had set forth in Galatians? That it's not by blood, but by faith. It was always by faith. So children, look. Just because you're born into a covenant family, and that carries with it great privileges and great responsibilities, great benefits, but it also brings along with it a great call upon your life to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus, to own Christ for yourself. Should you look to your baptism? Yes. Because when you look to that sign, what do you think of? Well, it's a picture of this. It's a, yes. But here's the main thing you think of when you think of a sign in the Bible. He remembers. Why was the bow put in the sky? So that every time God threw it up in the sky, he would remember his covenant. Why was circumcision given? That he would remember. Why is baptism given? that he would remember. Why is the Lord's Supper administered? That he would remember. It's all about him, y'all. If God doesn't remember you, you're in trouble. But he does. He remembers his people. Adults. Here's a convicting question to end on. Are you more like Joseph of Arimathea before the cross or Joseph of Arimathea after the cross? Are you more like Nicodemus before or Nicodemus after? In other words, are you standing for Jesus morning, noon, and night? 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if it could be said of each of us on that day when we are laid to rest, there lies a man, there lies a woman, there lies a boy, there lies a girl who never feared the face of man, but only trusted in the providence of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We ask you to sink it deep into us that as we go out into the public square in these next six days, we might stand for Christ and that we might remember that he's the one who wound, his wounds have healed us of our fears of man. His wounds have healed us of our sins. His wounds have set us on a new trajectory, life everlasting. Amen.